Thanks for downloading this episode of Cork Talk with me, Tim Atkin. A weekly conversation with some of the most famous people in the world of wine. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Nomacork by Vinventions. Driven by a commitment to innovation, the new plant-based Nomacork Green Line offers significant improvements in wine closure performance. Thanks to a rigorous oxygen ingress rate, you can decide which cork is best for your wine, whether it's for young and fresh wines or for those with ageing potential. Andreas Larsen started his working life as a chef, but decided he wanted to move into wine after a trip to Burgundy and the Rhone Valley. Boy, was that a good idea, because within eight years he'd won the best sommelier in the world award. Listen to his chat about his jazz guitar playing, great food and wine pairings, Sweden's expanding vineyards, and what makes a great taster. Hi, Andreas, how are you? I'm great, how are you? I'm really, really well. It's lovely to hear your voice after so long. I've seen you for ages, actually. Well, where are you? Stockholm, presumably. I'm at home in Stockholm right now. It's snowing like hell. Well, it's been snowing like hell, so it's, it's, a, it's a nice change, actually. The authentic Swedish experience. Yeah, but, we, it, you know, people tend to think of Sweden as the North Pole, but it's, uh, Stockholm is a fairly mild climate, actually. Yeah. It's not as cold and, and, and tough as people believe, but... Uh, I- and surrounded by water, isn't it? I mean, lots it, of water. It is. So it's, it's yeah. fairly mild for its northern location. Yeah. And listen, I mean, you've been traveling a lot, haven't you? Yes, I've been. This year, it was actually the first time I started the long haul travels. I've been a few times to Canada, the United States. I've been to, I just came back from a long trip in, in Japan and Singapore. So yeah. quite a contrast. And now being able to travel again without the masks and all that, all that stuff, it feels kind of exotic after all everything that happened. He said, listen, I ask everybody about their about their childhood, so I'm going to do that with you. I'm not a shrink, but I want to know what you think. Because you were kind of interested in cooking gastronomy as a kid. You know, I mean, not, not all kids are. Were your parents foodies and were they chefs or something or not? Not at all. Not at all. I really think I'm a, you know, I, I'm, I'm a contrast to the environment when I grew up. Because, of course, gastronomy in Sweden in the 70s and, and, and the early 80s, it was pretty much like, I suppose, British gastronomy at that time. Probably not as bad, I would guess. <laughs> <laughs> no, but no one came here to to you know visit restaurants and, and stuff. But the thing was, I was I was, you know, I was always hungry. I had my my grandmother who cooked well, better than my mother. I'm have to maybe it's sacrilegious to speak badly about your mother's cooking, but we were fed well. But uh, when we started to you know, when I went to my grandmother's place, I, you know, I tasted stuff I never tasted at home. It's the first time I tasted a vinaigrette with Dijon mustard and a, a tomato salad. It was at my grandmother's place. And it really changed a lot. Then she was subscribing to the food magazines and I was reading them and I was asking her questions. And then, you know, when we got still going back to my miserable <laughs> childhood, you know, we had two TV channels until 1987, I believe. Then we got cable TV and we got French uh, Télésanc. And we watched these these programs where they were cooking, they were drinking wine, and me, and my brother, who's two years younger than me, who's a chef today, we were like, "Oh my God, that will never ever happen in Sweden." And uh, well, in the end, we came there, so it, it really triggered our, you know, uh, the, the interest for something that was new, that was exotic. And it made you go, you know, you went to catering school, didn't you, when you were sixteen? Yeah. Graduated nineteen ninety, and you became a chef for for, for seven years. I mean, did you work in one restaurant or different places? What, what sort of food did you cook? At that time, I was I was working in many different restaurants, and to be honest, you know, I was very in- interested in gastronomy more than the work in itself because my big passion uh, at that time was really music. So I really I did, really didn't do anything ambitious in terms of a chef. I did some, you know, uh, I did uh, 
catering. I did some lunch restaurants. Mm. I worked extra to, to pay the rent. Mm. That's the reason also, you know, at the, at the end of the 90s, I said, well, I sh- either I should quit this or I should do something else. Uh, okay, because you got the wine bug, didn't you, on a trip to Burgundy and the Rhone? I mean, what happened exactly? Were you already looking to do something else? Yeah, well, this was actually while, while being a chef, we traveled to visit the Bocuse d'Or or, or to um, attend the Bocuse d'Or in uh, 97, where actually the Swede Matthias Dahlgren won the first Swede to do that. And I actually started to work with him a few years later at the Bonnyoc restaurant. But, um, and that was just, wine was just something, um, I was overwhelmed by it because, you know, it was, of course, something fancy when you saw, you know, wine tasters speaking about wine, you read about it, the history. Uh, the mystery surrounding it and uh, the sheer flavor of it, of course. And was there one wine on the trip that made you think, hey, I might do this? Well, I remember we actually ha- had a visit um, at Gigal with the, with the Marcel Gigal and tasting those wines. I probably didn't understand them back then, but they were kind of, oh, my God, this is really good. And he was wearing his flat cap, was he? <laughs> of course, of course. He still looks the same. He hasn't aged a lot. <laughs> no, maybe it's just drinking good Rhone wines. I mean, we don't look too bad for our age, do we, I hope? No, no, I'm just on the right side of 50 now, so I, I still feel okay. <laughs> okay. I'm on the wrong side of 60, and I feel okay, I'm pleased to say, anyway. So you came back from this trip, and you decided, what, I want to be a sommelier, just like that? Yeah, a few years later, because, I mean, at that time, we, you know, wine importers started to, we actually had a, you know, an import monopoly until 1995 in Sweden. So there were no importers. There was one importer and uh, that ceased in 1995. So everyone who was an agent before, they started to import mm-hmm. and they could sell directly to the on trade. And that, of course, you know, triggered, all, I mean, all the, the importers, the movement, the, the, the tastings and so forth. So I was lucky to be able to taste a lot of the, a lot of the good stuff. And then I just heard about this. It was only one sommelier education at that time um, that I that I know of, of course. And it was the Restaurant Academy in Stockholm. So I said, oh, let's let's quit the the kitchen. And uh, if I can't make a living as playing, you know, creative avant-garde jazz, let's do something else. So you're doing both jobs at the same time, were you? Yeah, I swapped a little bit to to uh, because you know, as a chef, you could always you know find extra extra gigs. Yeah, whereas sommeliers tend to work at night, don't they? They do. So, so I, I actually, for one or two years, I worked, you know, uh, in a restaurant in, in the day and I worked in a wine bar in the evening. I see. And, and what, with the first place you worked, what was it called? It was, I'll try and pronounce this in Swedish, Restaurant Gedemen. Is that right? That, that's the, that, that was a school, actually. Oh, that was the school. Okay. The, the, my first real job was the wine cellar Grappe, like the, the French Grappe cluster. I, I, I'm... I don't remember if you've been there in Stockholm, but that place was really the first of its kind. It was a private club, not a p- fancy, posh London-style club, mm. but a club where people living in the city in apartments, not having natural cellars, could each uh, store their wine. Mm. And in the evenings, it was like a pli- private club room. You could have a simple meal and you could enjoy your wines. And you knew nothing, presumably, at this point, or did you started to learn something by then? No, I, I, I learned pretty fast because I was, you know, back in those days, my life was kind of carefree. I was... I was single. I had all the time in the world. I, I was reading. I was studying. And I'm kind of, you know, when I when I like something, I get kind of obsessed. Mm. So all, all my time, all my money was only spent on, on, on wine. And that was that, that was a place to be because, you know, every single day I tasted, you know, Latour, Moton, Sassicaia, Vega Cecilia, Graham 63 every single day. So, yeah. so, you know, it, it was really, I think a lot of young sommeliers today, they don't have those opportunities of tasting those wines. 
And uh, maybe they get it some, somewhere like 67 Pall Mall in London or Singapore where members are the same thing. Members are coming in with wines all the time, yeah? Exactly. So, so that was an amazing... Um, that was an amazing experience, actually. I thought it was normal back then, and that really triggered my interest in, in wine tastings because uh, Jonas Reimann, who I think you know, who was the cellar master back there, he became an MW, I think, two, three years ago. He, um, he told me, you know, to, uh, well, you know, we, sh we should taste, we should do blind tasting, should try to do the competitions and, and so forth. And at that time, I, of course, I didn't believe I had any special talent or anything. I'm going to ask you about that later, about special talents. But I want to ask you now, do, do, what do you think makes a good sommelier and what makes a bad one? I think we all know what makes a bad one, but what, make, what makes a good one, do you think? Well, first of all, I think it's sometimes you need to forget, uh, you know, not thinking too much about the wine itself because, you know, wine, that's the, that's the hardware. You need to know this much or that much, you know, about it. You have to know your own wine list. But in the end, I think it comes down to uh, communication. It comes down to psychology. You know, I still get frustrated when I see sommeliers, you know, well, let's not get into that. But I, I no, think please do. About, <laughs> get into it. <laughs> no, but in terms of communication, you know, uh, I was recently at the, you know, Star Restaurant and um, I ordered a bottle of Burgundy and the sommelier came to me. He, he didn't recognize me. He knew who I was. It was a young guy. <clears throat> and he comes and explains that this is a... This is made from the Pinot Noir variety. Mm. And I mean, you can't really start at that level. If you're in a star restaurant, I think most clients know as much as, uh, mm. as the staff about it. <laughs> to have that, you know, like reading the, the, the product sheet, mm. you know, it was aged in French oak for eight to 10 months. It's 85% yeah. of this. That, that's just bullshit. I think you should, you know, you have to be able to speak to geniuses and the idiots alike mm. and to adapt to the level of the table. Yeah. And being there to, to entertain them and to listen to them. And you're actually there for, for your clients, not for your own ego. So it's, it's almost like you need to be a psychologist, that you're looking at people and thinking, what level of information do these people want? Exactly. And I think sometimes you should, you should go to the table, you should serve the wine and you should leave. That's <laughs> shut up! Yeah, just shut up. What do you, I want to ask you one thing. What, what, what do you feel about uh, sommeliers are always topping your glass up? Does that annoy you? It annoys me. You know, I actually experienced, well, it was good, but it stresses me because I'm a wine drinker. You know, I taste wine when I work, but when I go to a restaurant, I drink wine. That's why I rarely do wine pairings anymore. Um, because, I mean, occasionally, of course, you ask for a glass of this or that because it's fun. But I I tend to order wine because I really want a full glass. You know, having these small pours, it's, it's not really... Yeah, uh, it, it really annoys me. And I, I prefer actually to, to have more of a bistro style service where you can actually yeah. refill your own glass. I, I, I'm with you. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, so you started this amazing rise to, to, to success, you know, within two years of starting as a sommelier, you were the best sommelier in Sweden. Then you won the European title in 2004 and best in the world in 07. So within eight years, really, of that uh, of becoming a sommelier, you were the best in the world. I mean, are you just good at competitions? Do you like competing? I I hate losing. <laughs> That's always honest. the same thing. Yeah. No, it but it was, a, you know, people always ask you this question, how long time did it take? How much did you study? It's impossible to say. But at that time, as I said, I was more or less single all the time. I was living alone. I could really, you know, dispense my time as I as I wanted to. And I mean, I'm a fast learner in many ways. I I never really took notes. I, I was just reading and I tend to, I have a good memory, which I think is the important thing in it all. 
And of course, it was a passion. I didn't do that because I felt I had to, or yeah. I didn't have the pressure for anyone to to do that. To me, it was just a, a new world. It was a new community. And I, of course, I did it to to uh, educate myself. And um, I really had a good group of friends and colleagues around me while while doing this. And I think the people who don't see it as a passion probably don't succeed, do they? I mean, it just becomes like a dry academic exercise, really. Very much, very much so. And I think I think in the end, that's that's the difference because for, for many years, you know, when you when you look at it, so many competitions. I mean, I, I'm still doing them as a judge, of course. Uh, I recently came back from Japan for the best year of, of Asia, Oceania. Uh, you always used to have, you know, the the last row on the sheet. Like, would you like to be served by this sommelier? And that that's kind of, you know, <laughs> does this guy want want wants you to make drink wine or? And if you, if you say no, then he's not going to win, right? He or she's not going to win. No, of, of course it's not only about you know you you should you should have you should be able to judge you know the yeah. the, the, the knowledge, the theory, the tasting, and so forth. But yeah. of course, being a service profession, you have to be likable. You have to be, yeah. you know, the communication. Uh, yeah. But what do you? Think? I mean, you're a very good taster, and you're a very good blind taster. But you know, do you think tasters of good tasters are born, or are they made? And any tips you'd give people for learning how to improve your blind tasting skills? Well, uh, I think uh, I, I would. I should sell an online course how to pinpoint every wine 100 every time, but it will be darn expensive. <laughs> So and, it wouldn't, and it wouldn't work, right? We've yeah, all honestly, we've all had days where we get wines like spot on, and you think, yeah. But there are other days when you're just so far wrong. You know, you think the Barolo's a claret or something. Or <laughs> yeah, but well, first of all, I think it's it's you're you're made. You're not you're not born with it. It's not a gift. And I people always tend to speak about the palate and the nose and so forth. I think it's more about uh, um, it's more about the brain. It's more about the memory. Mm. And I think that, you know, you always speak about right brain people or left brain people, you know, the, the engineers, mm. mathematicians, you know, they want exact values. And uh, yeah. those people, they tend to like, you know, uh, whiskey more than wine because it's, it's you have an exact, it's more of an exact science. You, you have a yeah. recipe, you have a formula. Yeah. Wine is perhaps too dynamic. And then, of course, you have the, the, the emotional type, the, the musician type who's more on, on the emotional side, which tends to like wine more, but I think you have to be able to use both halves of the brain to be able to be strict and analyze, but also to you know let go and <laughs> and follow the flow. Well, so there's 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 an element of sort of intuition, isn't there? Really, don't you it, think? It, it is. It is. You know, I mean, have you ever read that book Blink? You know, where sometimes your first impression is your right impression. I tell people that with blind tasting, you can often overanalyze things and talk yourself out of the right answer. You know, I I've, I've told my students that so many times. And still, you know, occasionally I say, "Ah, oh, this must be it," and then I say, "Oh no, perhaps it, it is this." And uh, so, f- first impression is is very much. I think it's uh, you know the the habituation of things. Yeah, you, you, you it, it's that's really the question of memory. Yeah, and more than you know having the you know the exact nose. Uh, I think it's about that. I mean, you moved to this restaurant in two thousand six. I, I think the PM and Venna. Do you say? How do you yeah. say that? And, yeah, and you know, you still consult them. I think, don't you? And there, while you were there, you won the best in the world, and you built this amazing wine list with five thousand, you know, listings and everything. I just wonder whether you think a, a great wine list has to be a big wine list, or can you have a great small wine list? No, no, that's you know, that's an exception because I was I was lucky to. Uh, it was a fun story actually because when I came there, you know, this is really in Växjö in the southeast Sweden, which is not. Uh, not, a, I mean, it's a bit of a business city. You have the, 
you have all the forest there. You have the the, the the crystal and the glassware and stuff coming from there. A lot of engineering going on because it used to be a poor region. So people are kind of creative and um, and um, good people. But you know, when I came there, it was really the ambitious restaurant on the countryside with a staggering wine list of eighty references or so. And you know, I started to buy because you know it worked well. The restaurant and the owner, who's a good friend, he gave me very much carte blanche of doing what I wanted to. Still, I mean, we didn't have investors who gave us millions to just buy everything. Uh, so, so it it really grew to into something exceptional. And today, I mean, it's grown from this this restaurant to uh, it's also a hotel with seventy four rooms. There's a conference. There's a so it's a whole neighborhood actually. And um, <laughs> it's got its own postcode, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, so it's a wonderful story, and uh, but particularly, you know, people working there—they've been there forever. They're passionate. They're hardworking people, and um, it truly worked out well. And uh, you know, then the Michelin star came, and the the and even more importantly was actually the three glasses and wine spectator. For for wine winos coming there, it's it's actually more important, I would say. But coming back to your first questions, no, I wine list doesn't need to be having the opportunity of doing that. Is you know being the curator for a museum or a, it's kind of a fantasy or being a conductor of a famous orchestra, it's a rare opportunity. I think a yeah. good wine list could be you know I think it's a nice challenge to try to to make a good wine list with uh, thirty wines. Yeah, you don't need to yeah. have the verticals. You can find you can have two mature wines on there. You can have the fresh and fruity and the stuff in between the fun stuff and some some classic stuff. So. I want to ask you a little bit about food and wine pairing because you're a chef or you were a chef you've done this tv series where you're doing matching with food and wine how seriously do you think we should take it I know some people get very hung up about it don't they think oh shit you know if I serve the wrong thing with the wrong food you know no 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 I I'm I'm absolutely not a um, policeman in terms of oh this doesn't work oh this is umami you have to have this or that uh, I would say in 80% of cases, you know, a good wine with a, a dish you like, with a wine you like, you come a long way with it. However, working with most of the selling tasting mm-hmm. menus and wine pairings all over the years, you, you have, uh, there are bad pairings. And, uh, you know, if you put it, um, if you can reach a certain level, and I think most, I mean, let's say with red wine, it's fairly easy. You know, a, a duck breast or a, a grilled piece of meat with mushrooms whether you want a claret or you want um, a, a Tuscan wine, you want a Napa Valley, it's not exact science. You know, it's, it's quite easy to do, do that. I think the thing is, when you, if you have five courses or six courses, to really start from the feather light and fresh and uh, to make it a succession. So, you know, mm. you go somewhere. And um, most people, you know, they come to the restaurants and they are, oh, we love full-bodied rich red wines. Everyone says that. Mm. But the pairings they will remember that will be the Fritz Hog Cabinet mm. with that carpaccio of, of scallops <laughs> with a you know high acid, slight sweetness yeah. flavors. Those are the fun pairings, and they you want to surprise them a bit, yeah. Very much so. Yeah. So I think with with sweet wines, with white wines, they're more transparent in all ways, and making the succession, you know, from your reasonings to your ferment to your perhaps barrel fermented chardonnay mm-hmm. then going into the light reds and so forth it's so to me it's very much about uh, i mean there are many aspects of it the the flavor in itself is of course important but i also think of in terms of history mm-hmm. uh, in terms of regional pairings mm-hmm. and in terms of um, there are many ways to see it and and uh, also you know when you ha- working with a seller at, at like at pm mm-hmm. um 
having the opportunity to work with mature wines, not necessarily expensive, but I always worked a lot with mature Riesling. Mm. I always wor worked a lot with uh, Sauterne for wine pairings, not for the puddings, but you know, somewhere in the middle of the meal mm. and taking out a 30-year-old Sauterne and, and pour by the glass with you know, crayfish, mm. which is uh, extraordinary. So it gives sounds, experience. I want, I want to try that now. That sounds yeah. fantastic. <laughs> tell me something else I want to ask you. you know, have you ever had terrible customers? I mean, some customers, particularly in expensive restaurants, can behave very badly. I mean, have you ever asked somebody to leave the restaurant? What's the worst experience you've had with a customer? You know, I'm quite lucky in that sense because you always heard the stories about, you know, people... You're very who... tall, so they wouldn't dare, right? <laughs> no, but, you know, honestly, my, my, my the, the owner of the restaurant, he, he threw out the people, some people a few times, but he's the owner, so he could actually do it. But when you heard the stories about, oh, well, I had these Chinese guys or Russian guys, they, they were pouring Coke in their petrus. I've never seen that. Because I suppose that as long as working in Sweden, you know, people coming here, they are probably from the, you know, someone who goes to Paris for the first time or to London for the first time, you know, perhaps you have more of the bling people there or, you know, going to uh, Saint-Tropez or, or so forth. If someone makes the effort to come all the way here, they're probably a bit more civilized from there. <laughs> I think they probably are. Yeah. <laughs> true. I just wonder what advice you'd give a young sommelier today. What would, advice would you give yourself, you know, when you were starting out in, um, you know, in the late 90s? I mean, first of all, be open-minded, work very hard because it's it's people tend to get stuck in a, you know, I, I think I'm the last generation because I actually, you know, speaking about drinking, I actually poured myself a nice glass of, of Bordeaux here. I'm probably the last generation that, you know, still grew up with Bordeaux being one of the yeah, pillars you, you, of the widest. You like Bordeaux more than I do, I think, and more than our generation does really. Maybe I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. Well, I understand if you grew up in London back in those days with uh, that generation who were a bit of, a, you know, the old posh, you know, of course, it was exciting for you to, you know, the wines from South Africa and Argentina and when all of that came around. When I grew up, it, it was, you know, there was a lot of wines from around and I, I just I just fell in love with the wines from, from Bordeaux. And I went there early on in my career. They were actually the sponsors of the first Swedish Sommelier Championship I won. And um, then I just spent a lot of time there because my associate is based in Bordeaux. So I spent a lot of time there for various of the consulting I do. Mm. And um, so it's a region I actually think is... It's, um, uh, well, I love the classic side. I love that. But it's also dynamic in you if you look at all the yeah. actual values there are that we we tend to, to speak about the expensive stuff and uh, everything like that. But I actually think there's there's value for money there. Too. I mean, there's probably be better value for money in Bordeaux than in Burgundy, isn't there? I mean, you know, the, the you, you get you get more for your money in, in, in Bordeaux just because it's bigger in a way. Burgundy has abandoned us. Yeah. Well, it's left us with not enough money to pay for it. But advice to young sommeliers, I think still being open-minded is important because you always have your kind of snobbism kind of people. You know, I only drink Grand Cru, I only drink yeah. Grower Champagne. Um, a lot of young people today, they're only into natural wine. Mm. So you, they, you, you, they're kind of closing the door for 95% of the wines the great wines from the world by, by by doing that i should i think you have to it's our work to to, to be open-minded open i don't necessarily like pet nut but i still tasting it to see if there's something yeah. you know yeah well there might be but have you ever wanted to make wine yourself i mean bordeaux for example I mean, you must have been asked haven't you yeah well i would never like to buy a vineyard and own a vineyard or anything like that because it's 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 not my my kind of work but i've been working a little bit with producers on making blends and stuff mm. So uh, I, I did some work with Mr. D'Souza in Champagne because he just wanted an external kind of taster, an external mm -hmm. view. 
tasting through, you know, what's the difference between four grams of dosage, five grams yeah. of dosage, and so forth. My, my friend Jean Guillon at Oco de Sas Roland de Vie, we, we did some, you know, the blending together and so forth. Mm. But uh, in the end, I'm, yeah, I'm more of a taste where I drink than a, than a winemaker. Because, I mean, what else do you do now? You consult a bit, you write a bit, you do a bit of telly, you know, you, you, what else do you do? You know, you, you, you taste a lot, obviously, and, and you judge. Um, how, how do you earn a living? I mean, you're very much in demand. Yeah, well, I'm, most of my consulting would actually be in France because I've been spending a, a lot of time there. And in France, I do everything from, you know, I'm, I'm consulting Leclerc for the Faux Romain, uh, particularly. I also work with the Maison Cartier, you know, the jewelry. So that's everything from, and I think that's that's important for us too, you know, finding the best Coteron for four ninety nine for French consumers to doing, you know, tasting legendary wines for people buying. This is Leclerc, the supermarket, is it? You're consulting for yeah, them? Yeah, sure, yeah. Wow. Yeah, for for the, mainly for the Foire Romain, which is yeah. you know the selection of well, you know how that works in France, works in yeah. France, and um, then with Maison Cartier for you know whoever buys jewels for this many millions going to VIP events or tasting you know the Latour and the Cristal and, and, and that stuff and really everything in between. And I think the what I like with this job is the the variation. Mm, yeah, um, it's the great joy of being a freelance as long as you get paid, right? Yeah, sure. That's all the problem. Tell us a bit about your favourite wine styles. You've mentioned Bordeaux. Um, I know that you're a great lover of Italian wines. Um, which other start wine styles do you like? Well, you know, I, I'm very much on the... If we look in my cellar, what I have, you know, I, it would be a lot of Riesling, of course. It would be a, a fair deal of Champagne. It will be Bordeaux, Burgundy, Rhone. It will be Piemonte, Tuscany. It's kind of boring. You know, I, I try a lot of stuff. I try the inventive stuff. But when it comes to aging and what I've been buying over the years, it's really more of the classical classical and regions. New world? Any any new world regions you like or countries? Very, very much so. I'm not I'm not traveling as much to... Um, to well, I, I really went once a year to South America. I don't go as much as you do and spend that, that amount of time there. But it's just like there's so so much great wine everywhere. Mm -hmm. that, that, that's true. You know, you can make very good wines everywhere. Then in terms of personality, in terms of style and how, how things are changing, that's, that's something too. You know, I don't particularly go to, uh, let's say, California anymore. Mm -hmm. There are great wines there. They're, it's exciting what's going on, but it's just a region, you know, I'm not a specialist there. There are specialists writing about it, making business around those wines or, or lecturing about them. I don't do that. I, I can go there, you know, once every two years because for the just to update myself and to taste. But it's uh, the wines are a bit speaking about value for money. The wines are expensive. It's expensive to go there. It's expensive to stay there. And, uh, you know. It, it always makes me laugh when you know somebody says it serves you there. Okay, this is our Cabernet, and you say, "Hey, this is great." And they and, you, and they say, "Yeah, it's our entry point Cabernet." And you go, "Great." What's the price? They go eighty dollars, and it's like shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it's it's. Um, and I mean, if you can do it, I, I lift my hat. You know, if you can, yeah. can can make wine and sell it, sell them at those prices, that's that's incredible. But uh, but I still think that you know, coming back to Europe and uh, when I speak about the the difference. For a young somebody today, when I started, as I said, the pillars of my list was very much, you know, the Tuscany, Bordeaux, Rioja, Napa Valley, and so forth. To see that now, when you find the wines from all the appellations in the Loire, you find the Jura, you find the Savoie, you find the, the wines from the Languedoc. Yeah. You know, 20 years ago, no somebody else would list Languedoc on a, on yeah. a wine list. That was yeah. cheap Blanc. Mm -hmm. So I think that diversification is a wonderful thing. Mm -hmm. You know, how we discovered, we we barely didn't have wines from Galicia, 
back in in those days. I would never list a white wine from Portugal twenty years ago. No, exactly. So so okay. it's it's so much going on. And coming back to those values, I still think my heart is still very European in that yeah. sense. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, just today I, I ordered two cases of wine, Galician wine, mixed cases from from a Spanish retailer because I thought shit, I'm never going to can't get most of these wines in England. And I, you know, I love the wines from Galicia. It's, it's one of my great discoveries, really. Tell me about your least favorite wine style. Do you have a least favorite wine that you just don't get? Well, I, I think you know, honestly, I recently I, this is not about bashing any regions, but I recently made a, a, a quite big tasting of. Um, it was actually a French importer of um, various Californian wines. Mm entry-level Chardonnay mm. that can be pretty awful style. I think the Aussies, they have they, they do it really well today because they really, in general, but that style, the oak-chipped, tropical, cooked, sweet, low-acid, sweet, I mean, it, it's really an awful style. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that, I think. I once read that your, your Desert Island wine was a 1934 Chateau de Is that still the best wine you've ever had, do you think? No, not really. I thought of Des Deserted Island. It was just, I recently tasted it then. Luckily, I have many of them. I, I just actually posted today on, on Instagram that my wine of the year, but the year is not finished yet, but... Tell uh, us. <laughs> Vega Cecilia 1970. Yeah. Oh, we had it one. twice this year, and both yeah. occasions, we actually tasted both Latour and Petrus. Yeah. Uh, 82s the first time in 95 uh, last weekend, but... And even though those are very close to perfect wines or perfect wines, the Vega just comes from another planet. Yeah. It just had so much stuffing in there. And what at that level, it's very difficult to define what's great yeah. about it. It mm -hmm. just grabs you and it doesn't let go. I, I've had the 64 a few times, and that's an unbelievable wine as well. Yeah. Just stunning. T t tell us a little bit about the TV project. I mean, we, I mentioned it, but um, it's on Wine Masters TV, which I've done a bit of as well. It's called The Sources in the Glass, isn't it? Is it you talking to a wine producer, or is it you cooking? What happens exactly? Well, the, the, the thing is, the idea was when, when COVID came, uh, I spent more time at home. We, luckily, we were never in lockdown in this strange country, and it worked pretty well in the end. But I was spending so much time, you know, being home. I didn't travel for four months, I recall. Everyone was at home. So, so basically, I did um, a few times a week. I was doing uh, lunches and dinners with friends, collector friends. Yeah. And uh, sorry for that email. Uh, and every day I was kind of posting, you know, I'm cooking this. We're opening these bottles, blah, 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 blah. And then Klaus, the producer of the, um, the Wine Masters, which is both the documentaries, you know, the master class yeah. He said, we should do this on TV. And I said, no. And I said, yes, we should. Then I said, okay, let's try it. Because, I mean, I was, a, you know, in my normal life, I would never dare to cook in front of the camera. I never actually did that. But mm -hmm. So the idea is I, we're in my kitchen. This is a studio in the Netherlands, and I invite a winemaker. So uh, we, you know, we had a lot of famous winemakers coming there. They come with a wine. Yeah, I've seen them. Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, you know, I asked, you know, Ange Lawson, can you chop the onions and I will do this, blah, blah, blah. Uh, we cook together and we taste the wines and then we cook a second dish. And so it's, it's not really a cooking show to display, you know, amazing techniques. It's very much about flavor, yeah. uh, showing the products and how you think, you know, how do you cook for Riesling? How do you cook for a mature wine? Yeah. So uh, uh, now we are, I'm actually go, leaving on Sunday for the fourth season of it. Oh, great. So it's been fast. Yeah, so it's it's been uh, it's been great fun, and to me, it really took me out of my comfort zone. But in the end, when I speak about my passion for wine, it's not so much about writing papers on you know fermentation and yeast strains. You know, you have people loving to do that. It's bringing it alive, right? <laughs> yeah, it's it's very yeah, it's a passion for gastronomy in the end. Yeah, yeah. 
I wanted to ask you one thing, just about which regions do you think produce the best value wines in the world and, and maybe the worst? The worst, you've maybe mentioned California a bit, maybe top end Bordeaux or Burgundy, especially these days. What, who makes the best value wine, do you think? Well, I would say, you know, Southern Europe, if, if we think about the Southern Rome, the Languedoc, uh, Spain, um, having, you know, these central vineyards, and we can still, you know, buy Cote de Ronde with, you know, 80 year old Grenache, you know, for six, five, six, seven euros. Yeah. That's tremendous value. And I think that these wines, even on the, let's say, entry level in terms of price, they still do have character and personality. Mm. So I would bear, you know, look at the old Garnache in Spain. It's incredible. Unbelievable. 120-year-old vineyards, sometimes, you know, pre-phylloxera vineyards, that, as you said, which are, you can buy for £20 a bottle. Yeah. And I mean, there's this value everywhere. Some, you know, no one would really speak, speak about value for money in Burgundy today because Burgundy has sadly, you know, the prices when it went, I'm luck, still lucky to have some, some stuff in my cellar, but mm. when, when you look particularly at the Premier Cru, the Grand Cru, they're tripled or quadrupled in, mm. in five years. Mm. So, yeah. so it's, it's uh, as much as I love those wines, they became just like these pinnacles and uh, very small allocations mm. and very high prices. Yeah, yeah. Another thing I want to ask you about, one of your quotes that I like very much, you're full of them. You said, wine is the school of life. What did you mean by that? You know, I never had high education. Um, I went through, well, chef school, but that's not particularly. Uh, but thanks to wine, I, I learned languages. I, I learned history. I learned so much about, you know, uh, you know, I can speak probably today, speaking French history, about Napoleon, the French Revolution, the inheritance system, uh, the regions. And so it is kind of the same for, for most of these countries. So, I mean, wine, it's, I love wine itself, but I think this, the, the history and the culture surrounding wine, that's, that's even more important. Yeah, I find that. I mean, sometimes people say to me, don't you get bored of wine? I say, you could never get bored of wine because wine is everything. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's climate, it's history, it's sociology, it's politics, it's economics, it's, it's flavour, you know, all those things are and brilliant. The chemistry, the geology. Yeah, everything. Geology, we could go on. Yeah. <laughs> I just wonder how you think the wine world is going to develop over the next 20 years, particularly with climate change. I, mean, I was lucky enough to go to that vineyard in Sweden with you, that great trip we did with our mutual friend to Blackster with Michel Jamais. Um, yeah. is, the, is that place still going? And, and do, are we going to see more vineyards in places like Sweden, do you think? Well, actually, Sweden today, there's uh, I think there's 80 commercial vineyards. 80? 80, 80. Wow. Having a commercial production. And Honest, honestly, I, I don't really know much about Swedish wine because I was kind of busy with doing my, my usual stuff. So I didn't. Uh, productions are very small and um, prices are fairly on the high side. So I still didn't find a, a real interest in, in, in discovering it. But I, I certainly think that it, there's a possibility of making wine everywhere. Mm. Then um, I, coming back to your question, I, I was... All, I was very often I was asked about, you know, taking, uh, you know, participating in a conference, speaking about the wines of tomorrow. And it's very difficult to predict the future. For, for 20 years, people have been saying, oh, we want less soap, we want less alcohol. We never saw that in the end. Of course, you have in, individuals and producers and mm -hmm. someone who, like, like Dirk Neeport, who started to harvest very early, still making great wines and changing stuff. And we've seen how probably Bordeaux went to the, you know, between 2000 and 2010, they, they saw what they could do with the you know, very late picking, the meticulous selection, and now they're kind of reclining a bit, coming back to. So I think, I think it's more um, stylistical choice than, than climate change. Interesting. Uh, 
yeah. first of all, because you, you look at some read, I'm certainly not denying climate change, and we see more of it probably in continental climates, you know, the frost and the, the hail and stuff we've seen in Burgundy and the Loire. I think in in a region like Bordeaux, close to the ocean, I think those it's not as dramatic, the, yeah. those climatic changes. So I think it's more a, a question. And when sometimes when you see people taking, you know, the technology from Bordeaux, you know, double sorting tables, harvesting very late and so forth. And 200% you, new oak. Yeah. yeah, and you take that technology to, uh, you know, Mendoza, where you have four times the sun of, of Bordeaux, using the same, of course, that will end up being something... Yeah, it doesn't work. Yeah. Not necessarily adapted. So I, yeah. I still think, you know, when people ask that stuff, you know, higher, higher yields, you know, working with super low yields, that will give you that higher yields, earlier picking, perhaps less sorting. Everything will learn to do to get ripeness and to get, uh, you know, richer wine. You, you could probably recline from it a bit. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, listen, you mentioned your guitar playing at the beginning, and you're a very, very good guitarist, an accomplished jazz guitarist. Uh, I know you don't dance and you don't sing, but um, just tell us a bit about the music, about how you got into music, and, and where did, did you ever want to do that professionally? Do you still do it semi-professionally? I, I still do it when I have the time because I'm lucky to be to be surrounded by good musicians, people I know, and very often I'm asked by you know like a wine bar, a wine importer, or friends, you know, we were having this party, could you come and play? And uh, I, I happily do it. And uh, I mean, I grew up in the 80s. That was the era of the guitar hero. So I had very long hair. I was playing very fast. I was Did you used to of... practice in front of the mirror? Of course, of course. And th that was the metal years of the, of the 80s. But then I, I was very much bitten, just like I was bitten by the wine bug, I was bitten by the jazz bug. So since the 90s, I became this... Uh, uh, I became a jazz nut and um, I wanted to play, I mean, kind of professionally, but it's a very narrow category to make a living from playing modern jazz, you know. So I, I kind of, uh, wine luckily came came to, to my rescue. And, and who are your favorite jazz guitarists? Get any names you could give us? Well, everyone from West Montgomery and Pat Martino and that generation to, I would say, the role model today would be someone like Pat Matheny, who really yeah. mastered all the styles from the, you know, straight ahead jazz to the more, a bit more of his popular works he'd been doing for a great, um, so, um, but again, being a guitarist, I, I really listen to all, I listen to sax players, trumpet players, piano players, and um, good music is good music in the end. And can you give us a perfect music and wine pairing to finish? Um, well, I would say that to me, the most, the, the best, I, I did a few of these events actually where we had the, I, I spoke about wine, I spoke about the history of the music and we had, had musicians playing. And I think the, the, the prime example would be a German Riesling with a solo sonata um, from, from Bach. Yeah. Because that's the purity, that's the structure. There's nothing fancy, there's, uh, there's no embellishments. It's just very much straight to the core, the purity and the beauty of things. So a Bach violin sonata with a Mosel Riesling, should we say that? Yeah, cheers to that. <laughs> cheers. It's been fantastic seeing you. I hope I'm going to see you very soon, somewhere around the world. It's always a pleasure to bump into you. We always have a laugh. Uh, and I'll see you very soon. See you soon. Thank you, Tim. It's always a pleasure to catch up with Andreas, and he really is a lot of fun to drink wine with, I can promise you. Next week on Cork Talk, my guest is the Australian viticulturalist and old vine guru, Dylan Grigg. Join me then. Thanks for listening to Cork Talk. If you want to read more reports, articles and tasting notes by me, go to my website, timatkin.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at Tim Atkin, and on Instagram, 
at Tim Atkin MW. See you next week. <laughs>